0: Heavenly Father, we come before you asking that in your mercy and grace you would pour out your spirit of understanding, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us as your people today, this Christmas day. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago now, Uh, We used to have a large tree growing in the front garden of our home, which was a pretty tree to look at, especially in the autumn months when its leaves would take on a beautiful golden hue. But that very same tree had some serious drawbacks. Uh, Not only did it have some rather large thorns, but its roots used to spread out aggressively in all directions. Once it even managed to make its way under the fence and under the footpath... And come up through the road surface of Livingston Street, if you can imagine. It was a very aggressive tree. So one day, when I found the roots of that tree growing up toward our house, I said to myself, That's it. And I cut that tree back so severely that only the trunk and a few sawn off branches remained. But still, it didn't die. For several years afterwards, new shoots kept popping up and trying to grow into new trees because that's what trees do. You could say there's always hope for a tree. As verse 1 says in our passage today, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is a prophecy about the birth of our Saviour Jesus. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah is talking about the birth of Jesus Christ, but he's using the imagery of a tree. Jesus is the shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. He is the branch that bears good fruit. And I want to say that we today are his fruit, part of the outworking of what Christ is doing in our world. This tree is the source of our salvation. You could even say that this is the ultimate Christmas tree, with its roots in the Old Testament and its shoots in the New. It's the family tree of Christ, and that's what I want to look at today. Because even in a world of great uncertainty, where governments are often out of control and where evil people prosper, there is always hope for a tree. Part of the joy of the Christian faith is that though we may seem weak, when we are connected to that branch and to that vine that is Christ, we have a strength that comes not from ourselves but from our God. And that hope has become God's blessing upon the nations, which we proclaim to the world today, to the praise of his glorious grace. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So let's take a look at our passage today, shall we? First of all, concerning the stump of Jesse. Who is this Jesse? Well, Jesse was an Ephraimite from the town of Bethlehem in Judah, which, by the way, is how Bethlehem gets into the Christmas story. It was the hometown of Jesse and therefore the hometown of his youngest son, who became King David. This little town of Bethlehem is the hometown of the future king, who became actually Israel's greatest king about a thousand years before Christ was born. So Jesse is the patriarch of a royal bloodline that belongs to an even bigger family tree It plugs into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so this family inherited the covenant promises that would bring peace with God and blessing to the world. Jesse was the father of Israel's greatest king, David. He was the root of a tree that promised so much, but in the end actually delivered so little. For even King Solomon, who was David's greatest son, wisest son, actually behaved very foolishly. He failed to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. As a result, the kingdom of David was split into two after Solomon's death. And after that, history tells the decline, the sad decline of the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah into apostasy and unbelief. And yet always there is a faithful remnant who clings on steadfastly to the covenant promises of God and waits patiently for Messiah to come. There is always that faithful remnant. So here in our passage today, we're in the middle of that long process of decline and disappointment. We're in the days of Isaiah the prophet where you can see the yellow arrow is pointing around 750 BC, somewhere around there. Something like 250 years has now passed since King David was on the throne and you've still got 750 years until the birth of Christ. In other words, we're going back today around 2,750 years, which in anyone's language is a long time. But even then, when Ephraim and Judah still existed as political entities in their own right, even then, the future of that original tree was looking bleak. For God's message to his people at that time was a message of judgment for their sins before the coming of a new and glorious day of the Messiah. In short, the fruitless, barren tree of the Davidic monarchy was about to be cut down by God's acts of judgment. He was about to lay into it and chop it down. It may have looked like a cedar, but it was rotten, and he was going to cut it down. First the nation of Assyria, and then Babylon would come in and conquer the land and capture God's people and take them away into captivity. But even then, there is hope for a tree. And that's the wonderful thing about the message of the prophet Isaiah that we're looking at this morning because it reveals that God's plan has always been to bring forth a new shoot from the stump of Jesse, a new King David who will be even greater than the first King David because this King David will have the unique distinction of being the son of God. He will be the branch who bears fruit and of his kingdom and of his reign there will be no end verse 9 says, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We don't see the world in that condition yet, do we? We see the gospel going forth and the message of Christ proclaimed, but there is more to be done. So this is my second point for today about the branch, the righteous branch. Everywhere in creation, the rule of God's new king will bring peace and safety and comfort to God's people. And unlike other human kings, this king will always do the right thing. He will never turn aside to pursue earthly temptations like we do, like money or prestige or power. On the contrary, as we read in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he will delight in honoring God, in respecting God for who God is. So what we're dealing with here is a kind of prophetic parable in which the branch is the Messiah, the coming king. A spirit-filled, God-fearing, wise, justice-loving saviour. This is the promise of God. And in him the nations will put their hope for a life beyond judgment. If you read your Bible, you'll know that God often prunes his people. He prunes the dead branches off. He often cuts away the dead wood and removes unproductive branches. But even if he will and does take his axe to the tree, particularly the tree of the kingdom of David, well, there's always hope for a tree. And it's in response to this gospel truth that I want to now ask two questions about the person and work of this new shoot or branch who rises up from the stump of Jesse. First of all, why will he be better than any other king? And secondly, how will he establish God's kingdom and God's peace eternally? First of all, why is he better than any other king? Well, unlike all the other rulers this world has ever seen, God's chosen king, who is the righteous branch, will not judge by what he sees or hears, but according to the absolute truth of matter. God is able to see inside each one of us the things that we can hide from each other we cannot hide from our creator. This means that his verdicts are always right. His decisions are perfectly pure never tarnished by any mixed motive, not by favoritism or self-interest or pride or lack of information or prejudice or fear. His judgments are always just and his rulings are always right. So in God's courtroom, you can be sure that justice will be done. And in a world where we so see a lack of justice, this is actually good news. There is one who will bring justice. We may not see it in our strength and ability, but we can wait upon a king who will judge and judge rightly. When this king passes judgment, he will always make the right decision, always find in favor of those who have been denied justice, always vindicate those who have suffered oppression under cruel and heartless leaders. He will always fix the wrongs, and he will always expose the wickedness and depravity of the human heart. Verse 3 makes clear, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, Or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. And with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Perfect justice. That's what Christ is offering. Perfect justice. Now you have to admit this sounds like good news for a world that is trapped in its own hopelessness. We see the world in turmoil and the wars and the discord that happens. But before we get... Too excited about perfect justice? Let's not forget that perfect justice may also mean perfect trouble for us. Because if God's king is going to be absolutely 100% reliable in his judgments, then he's going to find out, us out too, isn't he? For the things that we say and do that are displeasing to God and that hurt one another. So we'd better be sure that our own transgressions and sins have been fully forgiven if we're going to ask for justice. Justice is a double-edged sword. It deals with the things that we feel have been done wrong to us, but it puts us right in the dock for the things that we have done wrong to others. According to verse 4, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Again in verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. These are kingly garments the sash and the belt, signifying authority and rule and power. This king has perfect power. And these verses give us just a glimpse of the authority of this king whose mere breath is powerful enough to destroy the wicked. This same Jesus is the Jesus who the apostle... John describes in the first chapter of Revelation. We read the last chapter of Revelation responsively this morning. Who appears in the first chapter of Revelation is the risen Lord Jesus in his power. And John says this I turned around and I saw someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash. Around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. These are imagery and descriptions that are used in the Old Testament of the Lord God Almighty, but they're being applied now to Jesus. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double edged, a sharp double edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is what Jesus will be like when we see him in his perfect power, the all-powerful king of righteousness whose mere breath is enough to destroy the wicked and send us to everlasting condemnation. Thank goodness that's only a part of the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. It's only part of the story. With justice, remember, God offers mercy. He offers a way out of the problem of judgment and death. Jesus is also God's peacemaker. His goal, ultimately, is to establish peace in all creation. Not only there will be there peace between God and us... Not only will there be peace between Jews and Gentiles, an end of the war in the Middle East, between men and women, between all the nations of the earth, but God's peace will rule forever, world without end. And that's the promise and hope of this delightful... It's a word picture, really, a picture of what the new creation will be like. God's perfect peace in verses 6 to 9. Even the lions become a vegetarian... The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. It's a picture of an idle, what do you say, a, a perfect world where there is perfect peace in all creation. It goes on to say the infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand in the viper's nest. Well, you see kids, they go around playing with PowerPoint plugs and things and sticking knives in. Them. I think I got a slap on the wrist as a child once when I was playing with the PowerPoints. And it's the same idea here. Putting your hand into the nest of a viper it was a, not a not an advisable thing to do. But here, the infant or the young child Safe, not a problem. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a wonderful promise of a future world in which all relationships are restored and where there is perfect peace. A peace such as we've never known before. And it's coming your way if you acknowledge the lordship of this king in your life. For he will be both a righteous judge who brings justice and a powerful peacemaker who offers mercy. Now the question we need to ask is how will he do this? How will he administer God's justice on the one hand and yet bring God's peace to mankind on the other? Well, he accomplishes it on the cross, doesn't he? The tree of life we see actually fulfilled in the cross where Jesus takes the penalty for us suffers and dies rises to new life and then offers his peace and his victory to us so here's the second part of the thing Uh, how will he bring God's peace to mankind in verses 10 and 11 how will he administer God's justice and bring God's peace to his people Well, first of all, we're told he's going to stand up as a banner to the nations in order to rally people to himself. The picture here is of an ancient army getting ready for war in the days when banners and flags served as rallying points for soldiers. And I've got to say in our world today, you notice what's changed in Australia when you see the um, pictures of politicians speaking? We used to have one flag, didn't we? The Australian flag. Now we've got three. Why have we got three? Well, because something is being said about loyalties, about sovereignty. Who is our king? Which nation do we belong to? If we want to fragment into tribes and subgroups, then we'll have multiple flags. But we believe in the sovereignty and the structures of our nation, then we should have one flag. And as Christians also, we should have one banner under which we stand. So Christ is our banner. He is the banner of life, the banner of truth. And those banners speak both of what we believe and what we're prepared to fight for. The amazing thing about this battle, though, is that this king actually invites people on both sides to come and join him. This is a battle like no other. He speaks to everyone and he says, Come under my banner. Not only to the people of Israel, but to the people of the nations, like you and me as well. In fact, whoever sees his banner and comes under the banner of Christ will be welcomed by him with open arms. And in the words of verse 10, the place of his rest will be glorious. So it'll be good to come under the banner of Christ. Second, God's king is going to act decisively to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. So it is a banner that gathers, but it's also a banner that separates because there will be some who want to come under the banner and there will be those who don't. And so that also is part of what Christ does. He both gathers, but he makes clear those who refuse to gather to him. So God is going to gather his elect from wherever they've been scattered around the world in order to create one new humanity under his perfect rule. And all this, I think, is a magnificent picture of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. He calls people to himself. He establishes the peace of God and offers it to the world. He invites us to join into the humanity that stands under his banner. He offers perfect unity and concord between all peoples and he offers safety and security to those who trust in him. About the only thing that Isaiah didn't foresee, at least at this stage in his prophecy was that Christ himself would be the banner and that the flagpole upon which he was lifted up is the cross. The cross is the flagpole. Christ is the banner. His life is being set up for us and calling us to him. So the nature of God's love is displayed in all that we see here in our passage today. He will raise a banner for the nations... And gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Next, in verses 13 and 14, there's a promise of renewed unity and strength on the part of God's holy people. Empowered now by the Spirit and led by God's King, they move out together to plunder the people of the East and the West to lay hands on Edom and Moab and bring the Ammonites under subjection and to swoop down on the slopes of Philistia. Again, it sounds like military language. The language of conquest is being used here. And there can be no doubt that in the Old Testament times, many of God's people expected a literal fulfillment of that kind of military commander as the Messiah. Even Jesus' own disciples were expecting this to be the case. But Jesus taught them repeatedly that his kingdom is not of this world and that henceforth our battles will be with the principalities and powers of the spiritual realms. So we fight with the sword, but the sword is the word of God. We fight with the truth and we trust that God will deliver as we do so. That's why this prophecy in verses 13 and 14, I believe, is being fulfilled in our own lifetime through the work of outreach, of sharing the gospel with other people, the work of Christian mission and so on, as God works through us as his people to bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven under the lordship of Christ by the victory of his word. And it's an opportunity for each one of us to get out there and share the good news. In this way, God is accomplishing a second exodus, a second gathering of his people from bondage to freedom, from death to life. In Old Testament terms, he's drying up the Egyptian sea. He's opening up the river and stopping up its stream so that people can walk safely across those rivers that prevent us and enter into the new promised land, into a relationship with God and into the Christian hope. So in verse 16, we're told there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. See, as Christians today, we forget how blessed we are to be included in God's plan of salvation. For the names of the nations in our passage today are names of nations that are historically some of Israel's worst enemies. Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Palestine, Philistia, and Assyria. They're named here as historical enemies of Israel. They're the bad guys of the Old Testament who often made life a misery for God's people and we see it still going on in our world today. And yet miraculously we see here that there will be some who turn to God's king and come under the banner of his name from all of these very nations that are being marked out here. There will be this transforming work of grace that brings peace on earth. In the days of Isaiah... It remained a mystery as to how God would accomplish all this. In fact, it was only really when Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he himself was the branch, that the puzzle finally was solved, and even then, only when he died and rose again. See, in Hebrew, the word branch is netzer. And Jesus was a Nazarite from Nazareth, echoing his identity as the netzer. Nazareth is like branch town. How interesting that Jesus should be a Nazarite from Nazareth and be named by Isaiah 700 years before as the branch, the Netzer. When he began his ministry, Jesus went back to Nazareth and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And when the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, he unrolled it and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, Jesus knew what he was doing when he opened the scroll to that passage. Lest anyone should miss the point, when he'd finished reading, he rolled up the scroll and he said to them, "'Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing.'" Jesus was identifying himself as the righteous branch, as the spirit-filled king who delights in the fear of the Lord. And before the day was out, those same people that he read that passage to were trying to kill him by throwing him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd And went on his way. You see, there is always hope for a tree, and if that tree is Jesus, if He is the righteous branch, the righteous branch from the stuff from the stump of Jesse, then there is hope for those who abide in Him. There is hope for His branches. There is life for those who place their trust in Him. So today I want to finish just by turning very quickly to John chapter 15, simply reading to you these words from the passage from verses 5 to 8. This is where Jesus takes up the image of a vine and invites his people to become living branches that bear much fruit to the Father's glory. You see, this is where the Christmas story progresses on towards. Jesus said to his disciples, "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the branch, who is now the vine, invites us to be united to him and become branches under his reign, under his rule, connected to him. So let me ask you this morning, are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you bearing much fruit in every good work? Hope you are. If you're a sapling today, if you're just a new Christian starting out, you know, just breaking the earth and starting to grow, then praise God for the work begun in you. Now I urge you to continue growing in your faith, established and firm. Make it your objective to abide in Christ as Christ invites you to. Keep working at putting sin to death. Find out what pleases the Lord. Grow up into your salvation. Don't let anyone move you from the hope held out in the gospel. Don't cut yourself off from the righteous branch, from the vine that is the living vine. If you're more of a uh, tree than a sapling, and more of a mature Christian, then again I urge you to keep growing because that's what trees do. Be faithful in your Bible reading and prayer. Practice hospitality. Love one another. Make disciples. Be an example for the saplings around you of what it means to make Christ your Lord. Be joyful in giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of his Son. And if you're feeling spiritually dry this morning, a bit like a a withered branch, then can I say to you, You'll find your answer in Jesus. You'll find your answer in Christ. Here's the righteous branch. Here's the true vine of God. And he's the only one who can save us from ourselves. Go back to Jesus. Look to the banner of life. Look to the shoot from the stump. Look to King David's greatest son. Did you know that the traditional Christmas tree is actually a very recent thing? It's only been made popular since the 1870s, probably 150 years, that's all. The first Christmas trees were set up in Germany in the 1500s and Martin Luther may have been, had something to do with it. But before there were Christmas trees, there were paradise trees, paradise trees. Paradise trees go back much further than Christmas trees. They go back to the Middle Ages Paradise trees were set up on the 24th of December, one day before Christmas, because that was the feast of Adam and Eve. It had nothing to do with Christ. People would set up paradise trees, representing the tree in the Garden of Eden, and decorate it with apples. And of course, you would still have your tree there the next day, on Christmas Day. You'd set up your paradise tree, celebrating the feast of Adam and Eve, and then it's still there on Christmas Day. So Christmas trees are an accidental invention. Martin Luther apparently hung lighted candles on his paradise tree in the 16th century, and so gradually the tradition shifted across from the 24th of December to the 25th, and we got Christmas trees. Sadly, our world has now taken our traditions over, hasn't it? You see trees everywhere lit up without a mention of Jesus anywhere. And some Christians today think that we should really do away with these trees altogether because they've become such a distraction from Christ. And yet, obviously, you can see the sermon illustration here behind me. I want to suggest maybe a better way forward is to reclaim our tree, and use our Christmas tree to remind one another that Jesus is the righteous branch from the stump of Jesse, who now brings light and life into, a, into the darkness of our sin sick world. We can use it as an illustration of the gospel. As Christians, we often forget how blessed we are to be included in God's plan of salvation, and yet here we are. The fruit of salvation has become your inheritance... In Christ you are now branches in God's kingdom and for those who abide in Christ there is life in abundance and eternal joy. So this Christmas, in conclusion, let's celebrate Christ as we should. Rejoice in God's greatness, count your blessings, look forward to the new creation, pray for personal growth and be the tree that Christ has called you to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that there is a tree in which life itself abides, a tree of life, a family tree in which Christ is Lord. And thank you that Christ is the banner lifted up on that flagpole which is the cross that at this Christmas, you are calling all nations to come home to you. Please help us to do that today. Father, if there are any this morning who are looking to find Christ, may they be found by you. Lord, help us to love you, to be united with you, and to grow to grow in all the ways that you call us to do. Help us to strive after love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. Help us to pursue a harvest of personal holiness and a harvest of new believers. For there is always hope for a tree. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amén.